Welcome to the Tuesday week 13 wrap-up edition of Unexpected Points, all your advanced stats, grading analysis, adjusted scores, my proprietary adjusted scores to give a better context on what actually happened this week. And of course, we'll get into some game management stuff and some other things that the nerds will love here. But for now, let's get into it. Alrighty, alrighty. Hello, everyone. Um, coming off of a very intriguing, you might say, Monday night matchup here between the Bills and the New England Patriots. If the initial word coming out here via my maybe biased social media feed here. Seems like we're going to be hearing a lot about the implosion of the Buffalo Bills this week. And I'm going to talk about this game first, so we'll get into all those details. I, I do think it's a pretty interesting uh, story, especially because they're going to face the Bucks this week. Uh, but before I get into all that, I want to just preface right up top for anyone who's new to watching slash listening the pod to the pod here. Let me go over some of the parameters for what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about all the games from Sunday and Monday. I do my Thursday night wrap-ups on Friday morning, on the Friday morning pod. And I'm going to discuss, for for context, what the spreads were going into the game so we have a good idea of you know who was really favored to win and by how much and what sort of probability we're looking at of winning going into it. The actual scores, then I'm going to have my adjusted scores which downweight some of the outlier plays, downweight some special teams, try to give more context as far as what's actually a turnover-worthy play versus what ends up as a turnover, give some credit for drops to teams who may have had some drops, and then factor all that in to try to come up with an adjusted score, which versus the actual point differential will give you a little bit more sustainable numbers for what will happen going forward. Uh, another huge factor in there, and we'll talk about this for a handful of different games, is how well you do on third and fourth down. You know, sometimes you have teams that are converting like crazy on these medium to long third downs. Others, you have teams who just can't buy a bucket for a particular week where there's some sustainability to that for teams. But on a week by week basis, it's best to really discount that and look more at the larger sample of how successful they were on all the different plays during the game as opposed to just those particular plays which matter so, so, so much in the game. And uh, all the stuff is built off of mostly the main metric is expected points added, which looks at every game state, down distance, field position, time remaining, all that sort of stuff, figures out how many points a team is expected to score, then recalculates it on the next play, and then you can determine on a particular play how much was added. So if you, you know, if you gain 15 yards and you say, well, now we recalculate everything and we're calculating you're going to get a half point more than you would have because you've moved from your own 30 to your own 40, something like that, or maybe your own 45, then we're going to credit a half point on that particular play. So that's what I'm going to be talking about when I talk about expected points added per play. That's the way to think about it on every single time, especially most of these will be in the context of either the offense as, as a general as a general entity or the quarterback. So for every play that they're involved in, how many points the offense was added versus what you would have expected for an average team in that down distance field position, all that stuff. Okay, so let's get into Buffalo and New England Patriots first. Uh, I got some numbers here coming hot off the presses, so let me pull it up. 
this just to just to get out of the way first this was my one and only game that i really thought qualified as a best bet for the week and that was taking the buffalo bills plus two and a half so yeah didn't end up working out uh let me get into the numbers and the details like i said i haven't gone into this in great detail yet because we're just coming off of last night but so it closed at three pretty universally across the board um so getting that at two and a half was some good closing line value because that three is the most important number you can have here uh the the key number that you can have there and it looks like the adjust the actual score is 14 to 10 the adjusted score is buffalo by a point so not by a lot but by a point and the Patriots almost broke my system here with how much uh, they ran the ball last night. I mean, remember, they ran the ball. They only passed the ball three times in this game. Um, and what's very interesting for me here in the, the Buffalo Bills, and I'll talk about my number of the game. I'm going to talk about that a lot here. I haven't picked one out for this one yet because I'm just going through the numbers for the first time. But you we we all know this, but I'm going to say my interesting number of the game is uh, 58.3 here, and that will be the number uh, the under expectation for the pass rate for the for the Patriots. So the Patriots passed at six percent of the time based upon non weather like weather agnostic down distance score differential. You would have expected that they would have passed it over 60% of the time. Of course, that did not did not happen. Now, what's really amazing about this game, though, is the Bills, they actually passed the ball 66% of the time. They dropped back to pass 66% of the time, which was only 2.6% under expectation. That's pretty crazy. I mean, we, we knew that they passed it a lot if you watch the game. But I think even in the second half of the game, it really started to become obvious that they were better passing into... 25 30 mile an hour wins than they were running the ball which is kind of crazy to think about but it ended up being the case so you could say why would the bills have a higher adjusted score according to my score why were they the better fundamental team taking away some of the flukier stuff on here than the patriots in this game when high profile game i mean i've seen a couple of uh at least one patriots or Boston sports guy say, hey, if we didn't give up that muffed punt to uh, Nikhil Harry, then we would have beaten them even more badly than we did. Well, l- let's talk about what happened here. So, you know, the Bills, they got into the, um, first of all, let's look at the, the points here. So let's look at the expected points added for those particular plays, some of those big plays to get in context on here. So the, the Harry muff was 6.5 expected points. So 6.5 points that the bills added on that one, but the Damian Harris touchdown. Now there's less of a fluky element to that because it is an offensive play, but a 64 yard rushing touchdown on third and five, the longest touchdown the Patriots have had on the ground, I believe, since 2012, they put up their last day, last night. So uh, in 10 years, that was also a 6.5 game. So huge major plays were coming the way of the Patriots. They were not highly successful offensively. They still required some of these big fluky plays. Another big play, uh, a bad handoff that Matt Breida, either he dropped it or Josh Allen gave it to him too high that ends up going on to Josh Allen's EPA so that 
it's going to hurt his his numbers there because it's credited that's the way the nfl does they credit those to the quarterback the fumbles that was a negative 5.5 so hey they got that the bills missed field goal now the field goal we'll talk about that decision making a little bit later but just to get an idea in the missed field goal in a normal weather agnostic context that was a four point loss so now we're up to an additional you know nine ten points of loss there and uh lastly if you want to go all the way down so those so those were kind of the big plays there the big somewhat random ish plays in a game that was very random because of the weather so you can see how yeah, the 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 muffed punt was part of it, and that gives some to the the Bills some credit that they probably shouldn't have had there for for being able to score. But there also were other plays on the other side. And if you look overall, so again, success rate is a big thing here. All, how often or not on a particular play that you're hitting a threshold of having positive expected points added. The success rate for the Bills was 37.5%. It was 32-33% for the Patriots. And again, running the ball, really huge, huge differentials here. The success rate for the Bills running the ball was 21%, which is only the fifth percentile. If you look at all the different game outcomes of the last few years, it would rank down very, very far in that one. It would be about 19 of 20 games. Teams would be more successful running the ball. Uh, the run success for the Patriots was higher at about 33%, but their EPA gained per rush was even better. That was more like a 60th percentile type of outcome. And that's because of the large, the huge run that we talked about. There was there was a handful of really, really big runs that the Patriots had uh, in this game. Now, drop back percentile. Um, it's interesting because the Bills running it, they lost about 0.17 EPA per play. And then passing it, they lost about 0.1 EPA per play. But a lot of that is also fourth down problems that they had there, of course. Um, yeah, so they, they lost a lot on fourth down here. Now, if you get the grading on this, what's interesting is that, you know, Allen had about a 60 grade, so not too bad, actually, how we performed in this. And I think we're going to look at this big picture a little bit here, and you might think that it's hard to take away any insights from this big picture-wise from this game because it was so weird, but I do think that... The fact that the Bills could not stop the Patriots from running the ball somewhat effectively. I mean, that success rate is not off the charts. They were highly dependent upon that long run. But that success rate is pretty good. Like, it's pretty good for the Patriots to get a success rate that comes out to a percentile, a run success rate, where their percentile on that, let me see, is about the 30th percentile, to get up to that level with no threat of a passing game essentially very little threat of a, of a passing game the minimal the most minimal threat you could possibly imagine of a passing game the fact that they were still able to do that is very very impressive much much better than what the bills were able to do the bills were not able to replicate that at all on the ground and this comes on the heels well somewhat on the heels of the bills losing and getting run all over by the colts before um, I know that was a couple of weeks back, but still, that was a that was a bad loss for them in this game. Uh, so I think we can. That's probably the one takeaway here. That, and you're going to hear a lot about the Bills imploding. Uh, is it Dable's fault? Is it McDermott's fault? Sloppy play, all this sort of stuff. I mean, all, all that is somewhat true, but it all can get fixed up pretty quickly. 
and you're going to hear a lot about you know Bill Belichick's brilliance on this. I do think there is a strategic advantage maybe in this sort of game. There are lots of interesting things to think about in this type of game. That's why I like it from a nerd game management type of perspective, because when you introduce new context, you give more advantage to teams that are willing to think critically about that particular play and what adjustments they can make rather than just do what teams normally do. There's a long list of ideas and standards that go into normal football playing. Now, we as nerds critique some of them, but most of them are pretty good because they've been built off of the knowledge of playing for so long under these different types of conditions. This is such a unique condition in this game that you don't have, you can't just rely upon doing exactly what teams have done in the past because there isn't enough to really go off of here. So it does introduce some new interesting ideas. I wanted to talk about some of these new interesting ideas that could have or could have not been implemented. Number one, the Bills deferred, so they got the ball in the first quarter. Um, I mean, sorry, they got the wind in the first quarter, and then they lit the, they're basically letting the Patriots choose the second half. Now, some of the timing is maybe random, but the fact that the Bills had what would have been two different field goal attempt type of field positions in the fourth quarter and couldn't convert either one of those. One, because they had to go for it after missing the field goal earlier, which they probably shouldn't have even attempted into that type of wind. That may have been a little bit of a strategic mistake. I know that Kevin Stefanski in some games last year for the Browns, where they had awful, awful win, he is a deferral guy. It seems like most people are deferral guys now. Most coaches are. So deferring means basically you're kicking off to start the game because you can only choose to receive or choose the side. So you're always going to choose to receive, but you can defer the initial one. So he's a deferral guy, and he chose to receive, though, when they won the coin toss in high wind because he really, really wanted to get that fourth quarter wind choice. And like I said, there's a randomness component to it, but there's also a knowledge component to it. The fourth quarter is when you're going to have the most knowledge of what's already happened in the game. You're going to have the most knowledge of exactly what combination of points, of combination of scores, really, whether it be touchdowns or field goals, that you're going to need to win. You have that knowledge. So increasing your optionality by having the win, giving you the option of kicking field goals in the fourth quarter, is worth more than it is in other quarters. Because again, you know, you have a better idea of how many points the other team is really going to end up with at that point in time. So maybe that was a strategic mistake. Although you're, you're probably likely to start off kind of hot if you kick the ball off and the other team has to punt it immediately and you have great field position to start this game. And the Bills talked about that and McDermott talked about that a lot in his postgame press conference that they had an average starting field position of the 40-yard line. The Patriots were their own 20-something yard line. So the fact that they couldn't take advantage of that was pretty telling and bad for them. Uh, another thing that I thought teams could have done that would have been very outside the box, but I didn't see it a lot in this game, was when you have the wind advantage, so in this case, the Bills had the wind advantage in the first and third quarters. When you have the wind advantage, running hurry up more often. Try to extend the game in those quarters. Try to increase the number of possessions, increase the number of plays in the quarters where you have the wind advantage by running hurry up, which you can control, 
on your side, and then even contemplating using timeouts strategically against the other team when you have them in, especially when you have them in third and long situations. Don't let them run the clock down that much. Although it was really interesting just to end the, I think it was the third quarter, I thought that the Bills might start using some timeouts there, maybe force a fourth down while the Patriots did not have the wind. Uh, They didn't do that. They weren't really able to stop the Patriots from running until much later, so it wouldn't have mattered. Um, But then the Patriots were also not really running the clock down, so they weren't trying to whittle away the clock. So that would be the flip side of it. When you don't have the wind, when you're going against the wind, take up the entire clock as much as you can and try to shorten the game when you don't have the win so I, I didn't see a lot of that last night again this is these are marginal differences you don't want to detract from the efficiency of your overall offense by forcing a hurry up if you don't want to you don't want to detract from the efficiency of your offense by slowing down if you think you play better when you're playing a little bit faster but I do think it was something to at least consider in this type of game where you're having such a weird outcome of never passing the ball as the Patriots did um I also think there was an issue with the Bills and the way they play defense, where at least I'm not a film guy, so I can't say this for sure, but it looked like there was an issue of guys getting a ton of penetration to the backfield and also over pursuing on some of these toss plays. And one of them led to that 65 yard touchdown. So it's just like if you give up one first down, that's okay because it's so unlikely in these conditions that the Bills are going to get another first down. So again, this was a third and five that Damian Harris broke for 65 yards. I would much rather increase the probability that they're able to pick up that third and five and you give them another set of downs. They're still way on their side of the field. They still got to get a lot more first downs to get into even field goal range. And even then they don't have the wind if they're going to get into field goal range. I'm much more comfortable doing that than giving up a huge, huge play. And there were a handful of big runs, and that one 65-yard run, of course, was the biggest that you really wouldn't want to do. So I think that's probably a strategic decision where you're – Really concentrate on stopping them, stopping them early, field position. But if you do that at the risk of giving up a long touchdown, which may have just been really, really bad luck on their case, uh, that's something that you don't really want to do. Uh, Punt return. I thought this was an interesting one. Like even attempting to put a punt returner back there or not, you could argue, especially if you're going against the wind, that... It's very likely if you don't feel the punt, it's going to fly and keep on rolling into the end zone. It did that quite often. So therefore, if the if the punter's punting with the wind, maybe don't even put anyone back there. Maybe just have an additional person trying to block the punt. Or if you do put someone back there, tell them don't don't even attempt to to get near it, as we saw with uh, Nikhil Harry. It's probably just a problem. There could be some benefit in just not having someone back there at all um and the last thing was i thought the bills maybe pivoted a little bit too late to actually throwing the ball more often because they just couldn't run the ball so i thought that allen displayed an ability to throw the ball a little bit better so that was something that in this particular game you still have to be willing to adjust backwards more towards your normal game plan if it is working for you um the the red zone problem, I think, was the big problem for the Bills in this game. They couldn't score. They got, you know, one score the three times they were in or the four times they were in the red zone and three times they were in the red zone. And I would have just wanted to see a little bit more Josh Allen runs there. And I know they had some penalties which drove him back, but trying to pass in that compressed 
part of the field is can be really, really difficult. Um, but again, I don't want to get into being a Twitter uh, offensive coordinator like a lot of people out there. So let's talk about the big picture ramifications from this game. So now with this win, if you recalculate some playoff odds according to our projections, other projections that I look at online, so the Patriots are almost up to 50% chance of getting the bye. They currently have the number one seed, about a 50% chance of, of getting the bye. The Bills now are about a 20% chance to win their division and only like a 5 to 7% chance of getting the number one seed at this point. The Bills are one and a half games behind the Patriots. They do face the Patriots again. And they do have, as of now, presuming that they can go ahead and beat the Jets later this year, they will have the tiebreaker. So, you know, 20% chance to win the division, one out of five, that happens fairly, you know, it's, it's not the most random occurrence. So I think people need to think about that a little bit more as it being a possibility. The problem is they have the Bucks next week while the Patriots are on by, and they're at Tampa Bay. But then they finish the season with three very, very winnable games Panthers, Falcons, Jets, whereas the Patriots, they go on by. So let's say the Bills can win. If the Bills can beat the Bucs, they'll be one game behind. They'll face each other again. So obviously the Bills need to win that game. So they would essentially be tied, and then it would be the who has a better record Panthers, Falcons, Jets for the. For the Bills and then the Patriots games outside of their Bills game uh, are the Colts, the Jags, and the Dolphins. So the Jags, that's a gimme. Colts and Dolphins, Dolphins are plucky now. So there might be a little bit of a schedule advantage for the Bills, but it's really contingent upon them winning this matchup at Tampa Bay. This is huge, huge, huge for their chances. And, you know, their chance to win, make the playoffs now is down to about 80%. They're not uh, uh, a gimme. The Patriots are in. They're like in. 99% type of chance of getting of getting into there. Um, it's very unlikely they're going to just lose out for the rest of the season. But the Bills actually have some outside chance of maybe not making the playoffs, which is a little bit shocking, to tell you the truth. Um, you would not have expected it. But, hey, that's where we stand now after some, some losses recently. All right, let's get on to the next game. And I think I'm just going to hit the... Sunday night game now, um, and that's Denver, Kansas City. The Chiefs were eight and a half point favorites, is what it closed at. They win 22 to nine. My adjusted score, much, much, much closer. It may not have felt like it, but my adjusted score is 1916 Kansas City. So only a three point differential. So that wouldn't even have been a cover. I think maybe if you bet on Denver, you could give yourself some credit because the Kansas City offense was just really not there. And the turnovers, I know Teddy Bridgewater, you can't necessarily count on him all the time, but the turnovers were something that you're not necessarily going to expect on a week by week basis from him. And the way this defense is playing, the Kansas City runs this high-risk, high-reward defense, and they got another high-reward outcome in this one. Uh, my number of the game for this one is 21, and that was the drop rate of catchable passes for Mahomes in this one. Four drops for the Chiefs. We did not classify it as a drop, but his interception also went off of Tyreek Hill's hands. We did not qualify that as we did not grade that as a turnover worthy play. So that brings nine interceptions. Nine of Mahomes' 12 interceptions this year have been 
haven't been graded. They were, were not graded as turnover-worthy plays. Huge number. Uh, leads the NFL by more than three of anyone else. And Mahomes now has the fifth highest drop rate. And I'm talking about the dropping drops of catchable passes in the NFL right now. So you could say he's been unlucky that way. But the flip side is the rest of the names, these guys stink. So the rest of the names, the top guys are Zach Wilson, Jacoby Brissett, Sam Darnold, Trevor Lawrence, and then and then Mahomes, and then right after Mahomes, Baker Mayfield. So he's surrounded by guys who just have low completion percentages generally, which decreases that denominator for that calculation. So it helps pump up the calculation a bit. And are probably throwing balls. A lot of these drops, whether classified as 100% a drop or 0% a drop, because we're only going to classify it as a one or a zero. Many of them are kind of in between. So when the passes are not perfect, but catchable, you're going to get more drops in those situations. So some of that is definitely on Mahomes in this game. Uh, the offense, though, the problem for Kansas City in this game is still unquestionably a bad offensive performance. They only had a 40% success rate for the game, 44% for the Broncos. The Broncos actually had a higher success rate in this game, but the Chiefs were saved by the turnovers and special teams. There was, was 9.2 expected points they gained on the Daniel Sorison pick six, one of the biggest plays of the entire season, and they also gained another 5.8 expected points on the muffed punt. So those are monster, monster numbers in a game that was only, there were only 31 total points were scored. In this type of game uh, and the Broncos, they failed a lot on their their late downs. They had trouble on third and fourth down. They were four of 14 on third down, three of six on fourth down. So they lost about another 10 expected points versus what you an average team would have done on those types of downs. So let's talk about Mahomes here. Yeah, I don't know what what to say really at this point. They end up looking pretty strong to start some of these games. And I get my hopes up a little bit that we might be seeing old Patty Mahomes, but it just isn't doesn't seem to be happening. He is ninth in his EPA per play, his ranking. So not bad, at least he's in the top 10 there, but nowhere close to the outcomes that we're used to in the past, of course, for him. He if you look at, you know, 2019, he was first in EPA per play. He was third in 2020, and that includes an awful Super Bowl performance in there. I'm including the postseason in these numbers. His grading in 2019 and 2020 was third and fourth, and he's 21st in grading. So just huge drop-offs, and we haven't really seen that start to swing around a little bit. Now, the offense as a whole, though, isn't that bad. They're about the sixth most efficient offense, sixth to eighth most efficient offense. They have some fumble issues, which has been holding them down. And league-wide, there's been a bit of a fall-off this season. Even the Cardinals, who are one of the best teams here as far as their success rate— running the I mean uh dropping back to pass in particular even they are not really stacking up to offenses that we saw last year in 2020 and in 2019 so everyone all the top end offenses are struggling a little bit so far this year maybe that'll turn around for the rest of the season um and the Broncos are just another one of these teams where we just can't really predict it all on a week-by-week -week basis I know the theme coming out of this game is going to be, well, the Broncos are okay, but they can't win against the elite teams because you saw they 
had a very disappointing performance against Kansas City, had a very different disappointing performance against the Ravens. But the problem is they also blew out the Dallas Cowboys and blew out the Los Angeles Chargers, who are now in the playoffs or currently are, are lined up to go to the playoffs. So it's not that simple, I don't think, with this team. I think it's just difficult to predict what they're going to do on a week-by-week basis. And that also goes for the Bengals and the Chargers, who I'm going to talk about in the next game there. Uh, but the Broncos still have about a 20% chance to make the playoffs. Again, one in five chance to make the playoffs is not insignificant. I think a lot of people are just would just write them off at this point, assume it's done. But, you know, Teddy had a really, really bad performance here. But again, on the season, he is 13th in his EPA per play. He's 17th in his grading. That's enough if you can get some good defensive performance and if you can get some good running on the ground to play well here. You just can't have the turnovers like he had and the massive turnovers that he had uh, last night, and you can't struggle to convert those three third downs. It's a make-or-miss league on third and fourth down, and they were missing a lot against Kansas City. Okay, let's turn to these other Jekyll and Hyde type of teams that I talked about that are the Chargers were at the Cincinnati Bengals. Cincinnati was a three-point favorite, and the Chargers win 41 to 22. My adjusted score is 30 to 22, so a little bit closer. Instead of being a 19-point differential, it is a 10-point, no, I'm sorry, an 8-point differential. My math skills failing me there. I had a lean on Kansas City on this one. Uh, Obviously, that did not hit. Uh, The number of the game, I'm going to say, is 35, and that is the playoff probability swing for both of these teams. That's why this was such a huge game going into this. This was the Jekyll and Hyde Bowl. This were two teams where, depending upon which week you look at them, either look like they could be an outside Super Bowl contender when they're playing well, and they look like they don't belong near the playoffs when they're playing poorly. And... Both of these teams are swinging between roughly 40% and 75% in their playoff probability here. So now we have Cincinnati closer to 40, 45%, and then uh, to make the playoffs, and the Chargers now up into the 70% sort of range. Both teams are 7-5, and five, but the Chargers now have the tiebreaker, which means a big deal going forward. Uh, but the Bengals have an easier schedule, so that's how they kind of match up in this one. What's what's interesting about this one is the scoring in this game. When we talk about the Jekyll and Hyde nature of these teams, 24 points, all scored by the Chargers, 22 points, then 22 points, all scored by the Cincinnati Bengals, then 17 points, all scored by the Chargers. Seven total turnovers in this game. Um, But there were some strange ones. And if you believe in momentum, the Bengals got a couple of total gut punches, one being the Jamar Chase... 60 70 yard touchdown where he he would have caught that for a touchdown but he juggled it and then threw it back for an interception and the other when the Bengals had come back it was 22 to 24 they had the ball second and two near midfield which is a very very advantageous down and distance second and two near midfield and then Joe Mixon had the fumble six that was an 11.5 expected point loss on that turnover 11.5 the third worst play of the entire season the Bengals uh, unfortunately for Bengals fans they also have the number one negative EPA play of the season which was the Denzel Ward pick six a few weeks back uh, right near the end zone um the Chargers actually got a decent amount of def- defensive pressure 
on the Bengals. That was that was a big factor there. The other big factor was, and the reason why I like Cincinnati in this game, I mean, the numbers told me I like them, but I like them from a narrative perspective, too, was the fact that they had been running the ball very effectively, and the Chargers going into this game were either second to last or dead last as far as success rate, defensive success rate against the run, and defensive efficiency against the run. And that didn't end up happening in this game. Um, Instead, the success rate for the Bengals in this one was 20%, which is a sixth percentile outcome. They had one of their worst games of the year running the ball against a very, very poor Chargers team. And then you combine that with the fact that they got down 24-0 very early. That really killed their ability to grind things out on the ground, which would have been the preferred way to do things than take strategic shots with Joe Burrow, which they had been doing. Um, You know, Burrow and Herbert both graded in their 70s, and I think people would be surprised to see that as of right now, offensive grades, PFF, um, Tom Brady's number one, uh, redacted. I probably should redact him because so we don't look bad. But Kirk Cousins, number two. <laughs> then Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert are right up there at the top. So these two guys, two top six quarterbacks from last season, both are playing on a pretty high level. The difference really is an EPA between those two. Herbert's eighth in EPA, so a little bit worse than his grading. Burrow's way down at 19th. So we're clearly much, much higher on Burrow from a grading perspective than an EPA perspective. Those numbers will probably converge going forward. So I think Herbert has been the better quarterback this year. But according to our grading, Burrow has been a little bit higher. Um, One quick game management thing that I want to discuss before moving on to the next game is there was a play that didn't end up happening, but people were confused by where uh brandon staley was going to go for two when they were already up eight points after the fumble six so he was going to go for two at that point and it didn't make a lot of sense to people but there were 14 minutes remaining in the game so there's almost a full quarter remaining in the game so i think most people are looking at this and saying if you get from eight to nine points you take it away from being a quote-unquote one score game at eight points to nine points and that's why it's so so valuable but when you have that much time left in the game there's going to be more scoring number one number two the the most undervalued point differential in the nfl is eight points so i think people are looking at if you fail on the two-point conversion being at eight points versus nine points is so so bad but the reality is eight points is also a lot better than seven points not that that was part of this equation but you know eight points is worth a lot because you need to add if the other team is going to probably need a two-point conversion or something like that at some point in time Um, so there's that and the other thing is if you get up to 10 points that really gives you a lot of optionality as far as if the other team scores a touchdown, you're still up by three points, which means you likely end up going to overtime if they can get another score versus they can win on, on another if they get another two scores in that in that situation. Um, if you only have nine points anyway, that's just it was basically a toss up this type of call as you get further into the fourth quarter and there's less and less of a chance of the other team having multiple possessions, then, yeah, you want to get that ninth point. And you want to you want to um, lock that in at that point. But at that point, it was more of a toss up. So I could see how Staley may have been getting information on his headset that it was much of a toss up. Uh, They ended up getting a a pre-snap penalty, so it didn't matter. But if you're confused about that, that's some of the rationale that that happened in this game. 
Okay, before we get to our next game, let's talk about some sponsors. First of all, PFF, get your PFF subscriptions. Uh, second of all, Manscaped just launched its new products, including their ultra premium body wash and two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. Time to give yourself or someone who needs it the gift of beautiful skin, hair, and balls this holiday season. Go to manscaped.com, promo code PFF for 20% off and free shipping. Tis the season to load up on Manscaped products, so get yourself, your dad, your brother, and friends the best gift at all. Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PFF at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code PFF. Okay, back to the games. I'm going to hit Philly Jets really quickly here because the Minshew Mania is out there. So I want to address Minshew Mania for this one. Um, This was, again, Philly at Jets. Philly close is a five, five and a half point favorite. It was more like seven before the definitive news that Hertz was going to come out. And Philly ends up winning 33 to 18. My adjusted score was 26 to 13. So both teams a little bit suppressed on there, but still a healthy 13 point margin. This is a weird game because we had Minshew versus Zach Wilson. Yet it looked like Brady versus Manning to start this one because the team started with six straight touchdowns three apiece and in a very jets fashion after each team has scored three touchdowns somehow the jets were down by three points because they missed the first two pats and they went for a two-point conversion on the third touchdown and and failed on that one Um, and then the eagles ended up getting three more field goals on on the next three drives and then they did they didn't score again after that but you know, it is what it is. So the question, you know, Minshew, there's going to be the Minshew talk out there vis-a-vis Hertz. So, you know, I'm driving the Hertz bandwagon, people. Um, but I think the number of the game here is three. And that means that this is the third best EPA per play performance by a Eagles quarterback this season. So Hertz still has multiple performances that were better than this. And this was Minshew against the Jets, of course, where they seemed allergic to covering Dallas Goddard in this game. Um, but he's smack in the middle in terms of grading as far as what Hertz has done this season. He had a 72.1 grade, which isn't bad, but it's not nearly as good. If you think about it on a, like a percentile type of basis, how good his EPA per play, how good his efficiency was, how good the scoring was in this game. He was getting a lot of help from swing passes that were being taken, uh, open receivers, and so on and so forth. He only had one big-time throw, and he also had a turnover-worthy play, although the turnover-worthy play was a little bit dubious because it was a ball that slipped out of his hand as he was scrambling out towards the sideline. Wasn't that much of a chance of turnover, honestly, but we ended up calling that a turnover-worthy play. Uh, Philly still leaned on the run with Minshew, which I thought was interesting. They had a 43% pass rate, which was 10% under expectation, but they didn't lean on it as much as they would with Hurts. So it definitely was a different type of game plan. Another thing with Minshew is his Achilles heel when he had played before. And I think it's important to have context to say he didn't have the greatest situation when he was in Jacksonville, of course, but he would flash sometimes and then go away. And if you look at his overall numbers in 2019, he was 23rd in EPA per play and 21st in grading. So not bad numbers for a rookie. But the problem is he was almost like this fully developed dude coming right out of college. 
six-round pick. That's a very late pick. Because then the next year, he came out, he was 25th in EPA per play and 25th in grading. So he went down in both categories. And what really held down, at least his EPA, is the fact that he was a top 10 guy in EPA lost via sacks both season, especially in 2019, in 2020, excuse me. He was very bad as far as the sacks he was taken. And in this game, in a game where he's playing against the Jets defense, that's not giving you a lot of trouble. Uh, he held the ball a 3.3 second time to throw, which is a very, very high number, but yet only a 20% pressure rate. So only faced pressure 20% of the time, even though he was holding it for an extremely long amount of time. Um, he also has uh, 18 fumbles he had during the course of those two seasons. So that's another thing. He was taking sacks and he was fumbling the ball a lot, causing a lot of EPA. So when you build into a quarterback's projection for their season, they're going to lose 50, 60, 70 points via taking sacks on the, on the season. That really does hurt their numbers if they're not going to add a lot scrambling and running. They're going to have to add a ton passing the ball. And Minshew can do that sometimes in these types of matchups, but generally I'm not quite sure about. He only had a 6.1 yard A dot on this, which is fairly low considering his time to throw. A lot of the time the throw was look, 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 check down. And that's great. Sometimes that can be a profitable way to go about things when you're playing certain teams, but not necessarily a high end outcome sort of guy. And I think he fits into that mold of a really strong backup who can win you games. He's not going to go out there and just lose you games, which is important for a backup. But any talk of him starting before Hertz, I think, is pretty ridiculous because he's obviously not the long term answer. In my opinion, Hertz could be the long term answer. So you have to immediately go back to Hertz. It sounded like Sirianni was with that. But the going into the bye, everything else, the Eagles beat writers are going to have fun talking about Minshew for a while now. Okay, let's let's talk Jets here for a second. Let's let's think, do a do a overall assessment here of the three main components here: coaching, Robert Sala, front office, Joe Douglas, who's been around a little bit longer than the others, and the quarterback, Zach Wilson. So first, we talk about this is personnel and coaching here. The Jets' defense it is so bad this year, and. If you look from 2019 to 2021, so the last three seasons, going back just to 2019, they were second in success rate, second bet, second lowest success rate on opponent success rate, seventh lowest EPA per play. They were one of the top defenses. They were top five-ish sort of defense in 2019. They filled a 20th and 22nd last season, so they're already pretty bad even before Salah got there. Now they're at 25th, and they are dead last in efficiency given up. And the strength of schedule that they faced, the offenses that they face, is around 25th strongest offenses, so not exactly world beaters on the other side of the ball either. And it's really, really just fallen apart the last handful of weeks there. Um... They have some time to turn it around. Personnel has been great, but you would have thought with C.J. Mosley coming back, with Quinn and Williams, you know, developing another season, that they would have gotten better. Uh, they just really, the back end is just not not doing a whole lot, and they're not getting enough pressure on the quarterback either. It's It's kind of just an overall problem and issue. And you do start to wonder a little bit, although I wouldn't go too far on this, how much of the Robert Sala thing was the personnel that he had in San Francisco, because we're starting to see that personnel weaken in San Francisco and that defense isn't doing so hot this year for the 49ers either. Although a lot better than the Jets, of course, with better personnel. 
Okay, let's talk about Joe Douglas here. You know, he's the architect, right? The Jamal Adams trade looks great for them. But outside of that, eh, you know, we, 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 we don't got a whole lot going on here for the draft picks. So you bring in Corey Davis. Now he's injured. He's out for the season. He was okay. But you're not getting really high-end play out of him. Zach Wilson pick. We don't, you know, you could say, oh, you could have taken Mac Jones there, but no, I don't. That wasn't a, re- a realistic assessment, I don't think, from people to to say that that was the case. We haven't seen a ton from Fields, or we've seen nothing from Lance, basically. So, I don't know if you made the wrong choice there. Sticking with Sam Darnold was certainly the wrong choice. So, for that alone, I don't think we we still have to wait and see on the Zach Wilson portion of this trading up. For Vera Tucker, we mentioned before in the first round was a bad, bad trade, and maybe that'll turn around, but the offensive line hasn't been great so far this year. And let's talk a little bit more about Wilson just to give you context of where he stands right now. Out of 34 qualifying quarterbacks who have had, who played enough, you know, 200 plays this season, he's 32nd in EPA per play. He's third and third, 33rd in grading. Um, and if you look at 52 qualifying rookies, in grading since 2006, since we started the grading, 52 rookies who qualify, he's 32nd as far as his grade is concerned. So actually not as bad as I thought he would be. But still, he's lower middle pack to lower, well, you know, ensconced in the, in the bottom half of qualifying rookie quarterbacks since 2016. There are some guys who end up breaking out of that range, like a Matthew Stafford, like a Josh Allen. He does have the physical talent, so I think that's good. He doesn't have a low, he's not a low upside sort of guy, but not super encouraging. Um, He's worse in terms of EPA, but he's actually still grading slightly better than Justin Fields, believe it or not, so far this season. I'm not sure he's actually played better than Justin Fields. I think most people would say that he's shown a little bit less. So we'll see going forward. But the Jets assessment... Progression is not linear, so, and this is a rebuild type of situation. So, I w- next season is when you really start to get worried about what may happen with this team. I tend to believe in Sala a bit more. I like his philosophy, at least. I know he was a contender for the Browns position. So, for me, well, you don't want to have too much faith in authority here. If they were that interested in him, I think that makes him somewhat attractive for me. But we'll see if he can right the ship going forward. Because this season is looking completely lost. Okay, Bucks at Falcons, ten and a half point favorite. Where the Bucks, they win thirty to seventeen. My adjusted score is thirty to nineteen. So very very close here. The number of the game is seven point seven, and that was the percentage of dropbacks that Tom Brady was pressured on. That was the lowest pressure rate a QB has faced this season. And this is with the Bucks passing at 25% over expectation. They passed 75% of the time. Um, so there's a combination, a couple of things here. Brady still, he threw the ball in 2.2 seconds, his average time to throw. So that's low, and that keeps that pressure rate down. But still, man, this Falcons defense cannot get any pressure. That's just an awful, awful, awful number. Um, the fact that the Bucks threw it so much over expectation, I think, is really cool. For a few reasons, they've been a pass happy team this year. And then against the Colts, they flipped things around a bit and they ran it more. And we saw that game that Fournette had and they took advantage of the defense there. And I just really like seeing teams that can be multiple. So this is a team, the Bucks, where they can pass a lot. They have the weapons there. They can flip to run if they need to run. They're going to get getting guys back in the secondary here. They still have the guys up front. I mean, to me, the Bucks are still the best team in the NFL pretty clearly at this point. And 
it's just like under the radar when they're when you're winning performances and everyone the top play that everyone's seeing from this game was the pick six that Brady gave up near the goal line where he was throwing it out to uh, Fournette and it was picked off by a defensive lineman who was sagging back there. And you're just not seeing the rest of what's going on here. I mean, it's just another really solid performance against a poor opponent. You know, the 90th percentile the Bucks had in their run and their drop back efficiency. Uh, 85 grade for Brady, despite the ugly pick six and his grade now on the season, 92.1, just head and shoulders above everyone else for the Falcons. This is tough. This is this is way tougher situation, in my opinion than the Jets who were who were before them. The Jets have extra picks. The Jets have cap space. The Jets have a young quarterback. The Falcons have Kyle Pitts. They have a player in Calvin Ridley who is a star but is having some issues where he's not even playing this season. They have a quarterback who is kind of wasting his last couple of years of usefulness behind a really poor offensive line and playing with a really bad defense, but I'm not sure he's going to be a coveted enough player in the offseason when you when you assume the massive, massive cap hit that you have to take to move him anyway for there to be a real solution there. You might be stuck in purgatory for another season here before you can really clear the decks and move on. So it's just a really, really tough situation for the Falcons. And it doesn't look like even 2022, it's really difficult to see how they can pull things out minus in that division, minus Brady falling off a cliff because their other teams are pretty weak in that division other than the Bucks. But the Bucks are just setting up to give Brady another path, strong path to the playoffs next season, presuming he does not fall off the age cliff anytime in the near future. Okay, let's talk Cardinals at Chicago Bears. The Cardinals were seven and a half point favorite. The final score, 11 point differential, 33 to 22. My adjusted score, closer, 22 to 17, a five point differential. Now, the number of the game explains that, and that's three. And that's the number of interceptions that Andy Dalton threw that we did not grade as turnover worthy plays. There was a tipped pass, which ended up being interception. There was an interception off of the receiver's hands. And then I'm trying to think of what the third interception was. I don't remember. But there was another interception that we did not pin on Dalton. But we did pin one of them, which was an ugly one, on Dalton. So that explains a little bit why it's a closer score than what the actual final score was. Um, So, you know, Dalton wasn't good, but he was better than the optics of what you saw. 62, 66.2 grade for Dalton. Not great, but, you know, Fields is only out of seven Fields games so far this year. He's only been better than that twice. Actually, I guess he had two. He had two INTs. That's what it is. Two INTs that went off a receiver's hands. One of them, Cole Komet, kind of grabbed it and threw it back up to the to, to the defender. So two two interceptions off of his player's hands. One of them tipped by the defensive line. And that accounts for the three INTs that were not turnover-worthy plays. But again, you contribute to your own turnover-worthy plays, your, your own turnovers sometimes, even when they're not turnover-worthy plays. So Kyler didn't have to do a whole lot on here with all the turnovers, but he did post very strong efficiency. Uh, no turnovers, no sacks, only 21 dropbacks, five of which were scrambles, 11 to 15 for 123 yards, two touchdowns, one big time throw, one turnover worthy play, which was kind of a weak turnover worthy play. The ball slipped out of his hand and he jumped on it. Uh, only a 4.3 yard a dot 64.3 passing grade. So again, 
just muted type of numbers here. But what was interesting about this one is Kyler has not been running it much at all this year. So he did turn that knob a little bit more. And that's what gets him up to being almost half a point per play in his EPA is the 10 rushing attempts. So he had five scrambles, five design runs for 59 yards, two touchdowns, and three first downs. Those are some nice EPA-juicing plays there and some nice value plays there. So this was a little bit more like a Kyler 2020 performance than a Kyler 2021 performance. And it's good to see that he can go back and do that when needed. When the offense isn't performing at a super high, efficient level, they can still rely upon that for him, um, assuming he can stay healthy. So let's check in on the are the Cardinals for real index because people are confused on this one. We don't want to crown them too early, but we're not at that point in the season. We're, we're far beyond that point, the crown them too early point in the season. We also don't want to become locked into our priors and say, well, we had the Bucks, the Packers, the Rams, the bills the chiefs whoever else is being better team so we're not going to put the cardinals in that bucket and we're just going to stick to that for the rest of the season so they're 10 and 2 they lead the nfl they're going to be at the top of a lot of power rankings out there are they the best team in the nfl when they have the second ranked defense in efficiency right now although against the 24th most difficult strength of schedule so against a kind of easy strength of schedule and the second best offense inefficiency despite the fact that Colt McCoy's started for multiple games I don't know to me I'm halfway there as far as crowning them not all the way there still going to put the bucks above them still going to put but I'm going to put them in the second tier below the bucks I'm going to put them in a tier with the bills still believe it or not um, but near the top of this tier, the Bills, the Packers, and the Patriots, I'll put in there. I can, as much as it pains me to say, I put the Patriots at the bottom of this kind of second tier, still below the Bucks as being number one here. Uh, looking forward to the number one seed. So the Cardinals are a game ahead of the Bucks, and it looks like let me let me look at their odds right now. So the Cardinals odds to get the bye week is about 50-50. And they are splitting that with the other team. So they definitely have the inside position. And it's about a quarter of the the rest of the 50 going to the Bucks and another quarter going to the Packers. So it's really just split up three ways there going forward. The Cardinals face going forward, and this is what can make things interesting, is they face the Rams, the Detroit Lions, which is a gimme, Dallas Cowboys, the Indianapolis Colts, and the Seattle Seahawks. So that's a tough schedule going forward. The Bucks face Buffalo, again, at home, New Orleans, Carolina, and the Jets. So a little bit easier schedule for the Bucks there. And that can make things interesting going forward. But I say the Cardinals are for real, but they're not the best team. I'm not crowning them yet. So that would be my overall takeaway for the Cardinals right now. Uh, before we get on to our last few games here, let's hit another sponsor, DraftKings. Football fans, whether you like action-packed NFL, high-scoring NFL game, which would not be Monday Night Football that we just saw, 
Uh, but with the latest no-brainer from DraftKings Sportsbook, $1 on any team can score one point. You get $100 in free bets. It's that simple. And if the Sportsbook is not available in your state, DFS is still available for you for huge, huge cash prizes. Download the DraftKings, Sport, the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet $1 on any team to score and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score with promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only, minimum $5 deposit, and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem. Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And Western and Southern. Whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Want to hear about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? How about a need to know for your financial future? Now you can ask about either or both. And every football or financial question you ask earns you a chance for a cater party for February's big game. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that is westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. If you're watching on YouTube, check the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. Okay, Ravens-Steelers. This was a big one. This was a NFC North battle with playoff implications here. So the Ravens at the Steelers. The Ravens were four-point favorites. The Steelers win 20-19. to 21-21 is my adjusted score. Smack in the middle. Number of the game, 46.1, and that was Lamar Jackson's PFF grade for the game. He's been struggling. Let's go to the seasonal numbers for my man, Lamar Jackson. And he's not, he had been hearing a lot of grief recently, but now that they lost this game, maybe he will be, because if you look at him, he's 18th in EPA per play. He was 17th last season. So, yeah, about the same range. 24th in his grade, though, versus 15th last season. So he's had a bit of a fall there. And actually could have been worse for Lamar as far as the results are concerned. He only had one interception. We all saw that horrible interception that he lobbed into the end zone for Mark Andrews, which was picked off by Minka Fitzpatrick. But there were two other turnover-worthy plays that weren't turnovers, that didn't end up being turnovers, that were bad throws. He had zero big-time throws. He was sacked seven times. That was a big, big, big issue. Five of those seven sacks, he was in the pocket, or he, he it was a time to throw was longer than four seconds. And three of those seven sacks, he had it longer than five seconds. So just holding the ball way, way, way too long if you're going to end up taking a sack in the end. Um, he still ended up with positive EPA per play, despite having negative 10 expected points in sacks and negative 5.5 expected points in INTs. And that's because they were absolutely insane on third downs. This is what kept them in the game, and it's not a sustainable thing. So I'd be a little bit worried that they needed all of this just to get to the 19 points against Pittsburgh, where their defense has been struggling a little bit vis-a-vis -vis what you would assume from a Pittsburgh Steelers defense. So on third down, they were 8 of 16 on third down, which doesn't sound great for the Ravens, but there are a lot of long third downs. Listen to these third downs that they converted. They converted a third and five, a third and six, a third and seven, a third and eight. They converted two third and tens. They converted a third and 11 and a third and 14. That's a lot of third downs. And some of these they were converting with swing passes to the running backs, too. It wasn't like 
again, it wasn't these big time throws. We had zero big time throws here. So the fact that we're getting all those conversions, I mean, Lamar contributes to that with his threat to run and how defenses have to play against him. But you're not going to see a run like that on third and long conversions from them likely again this season. And that's what kept them in this game with really poor play around that. Uh, one of the best games of the year for Ben Roethlisberger, 75.3 grade. He averaged quarter of a point per play in his expected points. He had an eight A dot, which is not like great eight yards, but for him, it's not bad. Um, and that's something that if they can get a little bit of rebirth from him. Maybe something will end up happening because the Ravens now, they're third in the AFC. They're the third spot in the AFC. They still are at the inside track for the division at eight and four. They have an 85% chance to make the playoffs. But the Steelers are in eighth place currently. So they're one place out. They're six, five, and one. They have about a 20% chance to make the playoffs. So this was, they needed this. Without this, they were, t- they were, they were forked. I think I already forked them last week. So I, maybe I was premature forking because now they have a 20% chance of making it after this game. And for nerd talk, two-point conversion talk, we got to do it. And for the two-point conversion at the end of the game for the Ravens. Okay, let me set everything up here. There were 12 seconds remaining, I believe. The Ravens scored, were down one before the either the extra point or going for two. So. First, up top, this is actually a decision, and I know it's been framed as an analytics decision. Mike Tomlin said something, you know, kind of snarky, disparaging about, oh, those guys, you know, I I know Harbaugh always does the analytics thing, so he's predictable, as if, like, doing the right thing and gaining win probability is a bad thing, you know, as if it's like, you know, you got to do the wrong thing sometimes to be unpredictable, I guess. But anyway, going back to this, this was not necessarily like an analytics play. It's fine. It's fine by the analytics. The one you see teams do this all the time where they go for it in that situation where it's not fine, where they shouldn't be doing it. The biggest mistake you see from teams where they're trying to end the game early is they do it with too much time remaining on the clock. That's a huge, huge, huge mistake, because even if you convert and you get up by a point, if there's even 30 seconds left on the clock, let alone 40, 50 seconds left left on the clock. You leave a ton of time for the other team with the ball, going to use all four downs to eventually potentially get a field goal to win the game before you have a chance to win the game. Here, there were 12 seconds left. So that box is checked. That's a very important box that's normally not checked on a lot of these tries, is that fewer than 15 seconds left to go, that's okay. Now you, you bring into the discussion that it's okay to think about going and winning the game in regulation. So then what is your decision? What's the calculus here? The calculus is, is our probability of converting the two-point conversion higher or lower than our probability of winning in overtime? As I mentioned earlier, they were a four-point favorite. Now, Harbaugh mentioned that they lost a bunch of guys in the secondary, including uh, Marlon, Marlon Humphrey. And coaches typically overvalue that sort of stuff. It may be true here. I think that's fine. Uh, but again, I don't want to give too much to Harbaugh on this, although I think it's fine that he's putting that as part of the equation. I don't want to give too much to him because it's, it smells a lot like 
I didn't go for fourth and one because my right guard has been getting his ass kicked all day long or whatever the thing that coaches would say in those that that circumstance. But that's fine. That that's part of the equation. But I think just strictly by the numbers, we thought that the Ravens' chance to convert there was close to 60%, higher than most teams because of the fact you have the running threat from Lamar Jackson. Quarterback draws, quarterback read options, everything else are the some of the most successful plays you can make on two-point conversions in that compressed part of the field. The average for the NFL has been right around 50% the last few years. So we put them closer to 60%. So then you think, well, what was their chance of winning in overtime? It's hard to figure out their chance of winning in overtime. Again, they were four-point favorites going into the game, which makes them roughly a 66% favorite to win the game. But overtime is so compressed that we're talking about maybe one possession each. It depends on where the coin flip goes, everything like that. So it ends up four-point favorite is maybe like a 53 54% chance. So I think it was tilted in favor of going for it here. You say you had about a 58 59% chance of converting the two-point conversion versus a 53 54% chance of winning in overtime. And then there is an additional factor, which I don't think anyone is thinking about is, you know, if you add an extra 10 minutes of play to the game, that may have a little bit of a residual effect for the following week and hurt you a bit. Not a whole lot, because sometimes these overtimes can be short periods. But, you know, if you're going to play another full game, obviously that would hurt you. So playing another 10 minutes is not ideal uh, from that perspective, too. So I could see wanting to get out of there. So I think it was a good decision. I think it was by the numbers, the right decision. He said it was about a wash. And I think it might have been a little bit stronger than a wash, but he said it was about a wash. I think they had a well-executed play. It looked like on the play, it might have been like a triple option type of play, not literally a triple option, but meaning Lamar had the option of handing it off to um, Devontae Freeman, and that would have got blown up. He He had the option probably of keeping it on that one and running it. And T.J. Watt blew that up. He made a nice play to go around. He threw it in a way to Andrews where I think he was expecting Andrews to continue running a little bit harder. Andrews slowed down a little bit, which I think is okay also from his perspective because he was open enough that to give him he doesn't want to he wants to make it less of a moving target. But there was a little bit of confusion there. It was slightly out of his reach. You know, no one really to fault on this one, including the decision, which again the most important part was. They waited, and this was at the very, very end of the game. That's when you can do it. If they would have done this at 30, 40, 50 seconds, those are the guys that really deserve the criticism in this circumstance for, for when they call those, not Harbaugh in this case. Okay, Vikings at Detroit Lions, seven-point favorite for the Minnesota Vikings. The Detroit Lions, go Lions, first victory of the season, 29-27, and my adjusted score has it 29-28, so very close, uh, Detroit Lions. The number of the game, 25%, and I think this is important. This actually isn't really of the game. This is more like a post-game type of number. That is the chance, as of right now, that the Vikings can still make the playoffs between 25 and 30%. Because I think a lot of people after this game, maybe because of the stunning nature of it, the embarrassment of it, are writing the Vikings off. But what we have to realize is, the NFC is not the AFC. A team like the Vikings now, who are five and seven, they're still in ninth place, and they're still close. They're still only a game behind the teams who are in the playoffs at this point. So 
We're not forking. We're not coming close to forking the Vikings after this one, although I feel like psychologically people are doing that after this game. Um, so let's talk about the... There's not a lot to talk about in this game. I mean, Kirk was Kirk. He had a pretty decent grade in this game. I know people are going to hate that, but he did again. Um, I can't help it. I don't know what he has, some sort of voodoo magic that he's that he's putting all over our our PFF numbers. Um, let me see what else we can talk about in this one. Oh, yeah, let's talk about the fourth down decision. Again, we're an analytics podcast. I loved the fourth down decision by Dan Campbell to go for it on fourth and one with four minutes left in the game on his own 28-yard line, up two at that point. And what I said at the time, and which ended up playing out shockingly, is that the hidden part of the reason why this is not as risky of a decision as people think is, if you punt in this situation, you probably have about a 50-50% chance of winning. Four minutes left. You can win two different ways still. You can stop them, get the ball back, and run it out. Or they can score a field goal so quickly that you get the ball back with, let's say, 30 seconds left to a minute left, and you kick another field goal, and you win. Now, by going for it, that second scenario we're talking about, the scenario where you get the, they score, you get the ball back, and you score again, you're giving yourself more time for that type of scenario because you're giving them a shorter field, so they're going to score more quickly. If the Vikings would have moved the ball the way they did in that drive, but yet you move them back to their own side of the field when they're starting, I think it's very likely that they're able to kick the field goal with time expiring, and you don't have any chance to get the ball back. So by giving them the ball on your own 28, yes, it's bad because they're more likely to score, but because you're up two at that point, you know no matter what happens on that drive, you are going to have an opportunity, assuming you have any time left when you get the ball back, and again, there are four minutes, so as long as you don't let them eat up the entire four minutes of the clock with 28 yards, you know you're going to get the ball back with a chance to win. They're not going to be, they can't score, you know, nine points to, they can only score a maximum of eight points in that circumstance, right? They can't score nine points to put themselves up by seven points and then force overtime. So that's, that's part of the decision-making here. And if we go through the exact numbers, there was about a four-point she we have we have it between we have a closer to five point difference. I see Ben Baldwin has it on his bot at four point five win probability gain by going for it in that circumstance. And if you go for it, your win probability is about fifty six, fifty seven percent. And if you punt it, it's about basically fifty fifty at that point. So again, the one thing teams are missing here is that, and this kind of like really illustrated the, the thing that a lot of people are missing in these fourth down decisions is even if you fail, you can still win. The game is not over. Yes, the if you fail for us on this one, it was like a 35% chance to win as opposed to a 50% chance to win if you punt. 
So it's still pretty high. Like, you're not going from 50% chance to win, as most people would think, and then lowering it down to 10% chance because you're likely to get the ball back. And that's what Jared Goff did in this situation. As far as, you know, how they were playing coverage, how all everything else was going on, how they let them come back, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't want to get into any of that sort of stuff. I just want to say congratulations to the Lions. And then also... Just reiterate again, the Vikings are still in the playoff hunt and an interesting team because on the right day, they're not one of these teams who could beat almost anyone, even if they lose to the Detroit Lions on another day. Um, these are some pretty games we could probably run through quickly. Colts. Houston Texans Colts were a 10 point favorite that was fluctuating between nine and a half and ten and a half 31 to zero bagel city 37 to nine so almost as big of a differential for the Colts on my adjusted score the number of the game is 1.8 and that is the yards per drop back for the Texans 1.8 yards per every time they drop back to pass um one thing is a little bit weird to me, and I think I understand why, but Jonathan Taylor ended up with 32 carries. He had 80% of the running back carries in this game. They did start to mix in some other guys in the fourth quarter, and I guess the Colts only had a two, three score lead going all the way until they got into the fourth quarter. So maybe that's why they were still leaning on Taylor so much, but you know, don't get the guy injured in this type of game when you're winning so easily. That was a little bit weird. 32 carries. I'm sure his fantasy uh, teams appreciated that, but I probably would have, you know, spread the spread the love out a little bit more on that one. And again, with Taylor and MVP conversation, this is another good example of like this game, the Bills game. These running backs, they have dominant performances in dominant wins, but then in tough games like we saw against the Bucks, not so not so dominant. So I think sometimes we can conflate the dominant performance, the dominant win. So that's a dominant player. But the reality is like they need the rest of the team and other things to be going well for them to have that dominant performance. Right. And the really valuable ones are the ones who are going to win you games on the margin, not going to pile on in games where you're doing so well to start off with. So now the Colts are in ninth place. They're seven and six. And what's really interesting, I think people might view them as being a lot better team than some of these other teams who are in playoffs right now, like the Bengals and the Chargers and others. Uh, they're a little bit behind the Steelers. The Steelers have a tough schedule. The Colts have a better chance to make the playoffs because their schedule is pretty easy. It's roughly 45, 55%. So they're basically a coin flip at this point, which is really great for them being how poorly this season started, right? 0-3 to start the season, all that sort of stuff. Um, and Carson Wentz, he hit the threshold, so the Eagles are going to get that first-round pick, but I think that the Colts are okay with that, with what they're doing right now. Um, I got nothing to say about the Texans. Sorry, Texans fans. If you haven't already you know, given up on football for the season, I, I don't got a lot to say about them. Okay, let's talk Giants-Dolphins. Dolphins, six-and-a-half-point favorites at home. They win 20 to 19. They win by 11 points. I had the adjusted score of 25 to 11. So close, uh, even a bigger margin of 14 points. The number of the game, 87.2. And that is the adjusted completion percentage for Tua. When you add drops back in, he was 30 of 41. And if you add those four drops back in 34 of 41 balls were catchable, 87.2%. Five wins in a row for the Dolphins, giving up only 11 points per game. But contextually, 
This is a team that's been very opponent dependent. They had the hardest schedule in the NFL the first six, seven weeks of the season. They struggled, and then they've had the easiest schedule since then. Look at the quarterbacks that they faced over this five-game winning streak. Tyrod Taylor, Joe Flacco, Cam Newton, uh, Mike Glennon, and then they did have Lamar Jackson. So you throw Lamar Jackson in there, but I mentioned earlier, Jackson's been struggling a little bit. Those other guys are like bottom, like almost the bottom four quarterbacks in the NFL. But Tua, let's talk to him. A lot of talk about him. This was, again, the same formula for Tua. It's working. Will it work under all game states? Will it work against another offensive juggernaut? Probably, probably not going to be enough juice there, but it's working for here. Uh, no turnover-worthy plays. I think that's an important thing because he used to have these turnover-worthy plays a little bit higher than you would expect there. So as long as he stops with the turnover-worthy plays and doesn't take bad sacks, he took two sacks in this game, but I'd rather him take a sack than a turnover-worthy play the way that he's playing here. So they keep on doing the same thing. Heavy RPO, heavy play action, high completion percentage, low A dot, although at 7.2 yards is a little bit bigger than normal for him. Um, and... It paid off this one. He had an 89.1 grade for this game for Tua, which is the highest grade, I believe, for, we graded anyone for the entire week. And the Dolphins were really bad running the ball. So we did all this with the Dolphins being really have really a poor running game. They only had a 16% success rate, which is one of the worst success rates you can have on the entire season, whereas they were a 55% success rate passing the ball. So there's this weird thing going on with the Dolphins, especially when you compare them to someone like the... Um, the Vikings, like people's feelings about these teams, like the Vikings are five and seven, the Dolphins are six and seven, but the Vikings have a much better chance of making the playoffs because they're in the NFC. The The Dolphins, unfortunately, are still only around roughly five, 10% chance of making the playoffs. They're in 13th place of 16 teams right now, being six and seven. AFC, tough, tough business in the AFC right now. So they, they maybe have a chance, but unfortunately, it's looking like a... Not going to make the playoffs, going to have some draft picks, going to need re reassess things, lots of Deshaun Watson talk, all that stuff during the offseason. I don't expect any of that to change for them because they're probably not making the playoffs. Okay, this is this is an interesting one. Niners at Seattle Seahawks. Niners finished as a three-point favorite. The Seahawks were the winners, 30 to 23. My adjusted score had San Francisco being two points better at 32 to 30, which not many people would suspect. And I think we had a lean on Seattle here, but this game was so, so weird and ugly. Um, so the number of the game that explains why the Niners may have been a little bit better from these sustainable metrics, despite everyone knowing that Gerald Everett was just giving the ball away left and right for the Seahawks. And that's 13.3. And that's the number of expected points that the Seahawks gained on special teams, which are generally the least sustainable types of points that you can gain. They had a fake 75 yard punt, the biggest play of the game. They gained eight EPA on that one. It's such a huge play because it's a fourth down. So you're giving the ball up. So it's like scoring a touchdown and taking away a turnover at the same time on the same play. It's pretty amazing. Um, 
There was also a fumbled kickoff to start the second half, which is a 5.3 EPA gain. So those are two huge, huge gains for the Seahawks that people may not be focusing on quite enough. Um, but Gerald Everett on the other side, remember I said the 13.3 points they gained, they did lose 12.9 points on Gerald Everett, where he turned a drop into an interception and he fumbled the ball twice. So considering that, why is, you know, the, the wash between those two metrics, why is San Francisco favored? Well, they had a better success rate offensively and they had a better efficiency. And the, the, the Seahawks breaks were enough to swing things in their favor. And the 49ers inability to score at the end of the game were enough, despite Gerald Everett's point shaving that he was doing in this game. Uh, Jimmy had better efficiency and better grading than Russell Wilson. I can't help it. Everyone hates Jimmy G. And the narrative coming out of this is, again, you know, Jimmy G, his problems, but he continues to do well. I, I don't know what, the, I don't know what, I mean, he continues to be okay. Even in this game, he was okay. But the running for the first time in a while wasn't quite there. They had a 55% pass rate, 9% under expectation. So they were still run heavy ish, but not nearly as much as they were before. Um, but their running efficiency was below average in this game where it had been above average in previous games. So again, it's like a live by the G die by the G. As I said last week, his third down conversions, he's going to make some great third down conversions. And he's going to have some awful looking interceptions. And some of it is just the way he plays. He just sees and throws. And sometimes you mistake what you see. And it looks like a really, really bad interception. And I think people focus on those a little bit more than they give him credit for making plays in other circumstances. So the Niners are still in seventh place, 45, 50% chance to make the playoffs. They're very, very much still in it, despite this result. And the Seahawks, I mean, the Seahawks are forked. They, I mean, we already forked them again. So they're kind of playing for pride at this point. Um, their chance to make the playoffs is 2 3%. So they're, they're done. Um, and again, the Russell Wilson thing for this game, it's the first, like, credible game he's had, but uh, it wasn't an impressive game, I don't think, for him so far this year. And it's not really going to move those numbers that we've seen so far this season, where if you go to the rankings so far this season, again, Wilson has gone from, he's 24th in EPA per play and 19th in his grading. He was 6th in his grading last year. So not really, not really moving the needle a whole lot for him. Interesting to see what that trade market's going to look like, if there is one, if there is a potential trade next season. Okay, this is our second to last game here. The Washington football team, the good old football team at Las Vegas Raiders. I had a slight lean on the Raiders, and that one did not hit. Obviously, they're one and a half point favorites. Their Washington wins 17 to 15. My final score is about 19-19, about a tie-ish sort of game. Both teams were about equal. Uh, the number of the game is 11, and that's the third down differential in EPA. Heineke continues to be on a tear, and the Raiders are two of eight on third down, only converting a third and two and a third and one. That's it. They couldn't convert anything else. They failed a third and three twice. They failed a third and three. Third and four, third and five, third and seven, and third and 11 failed on all of those different things. And the question is, in a game where you end up losing or it's a close game, guess what they were on fourth down? Zero of zero because uh, Basaccia 
does not seem to believe in fourth downs at all. He's consistently giving up 5-10% win probability, not going for it on fourth downs. Like, like I said, zero attempts this game. He, there's a couple of ones that would have been a little bit more on the margins where he could have earned about 1.52% win probability by going for it on his own side of the field. I don't expect that from, from him. But there was a big one later on where in the third quarter, about five minutes left to go, fourth down and four, fourth and three. I'm sorry, not fourth down and four. They're down four points. So the Raiders are down four points. Fourth and three on the Washington 20-yard line. Now, it is someone in that zone where you have a high, high success rate for kicking a field goal, so it can be beneficial. But when you're down four points, you know, kicking a field goal there versus going for it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That was about five, that was about 6% win probability, according to our numbers, that they're giving up by doing that. That's a huge number. So Basaccia is adding a little bit of a drag to the Raiders on a weekly basis. Maybe I should consider that a bit more in my numbers when I'm uh, handicapping these games. So Taylor Heineke, everyone continues to love the Heineke after having a trouble at the beginning of the season. People are talking about him. Is he the long-term solution? No, he's not. Uh, but he's fun. He's fun to watch. And he had two dropped interceptions in this one, one that could have been a pick six. But again, linebackers kind of have the stone hands there, and they're not necessarily going to do that well on that type of play. Actually, I think it was a linebacker. Maybe it was a safety. And there was about a minute left on the final drive before they kicked a very improbable long field goal to a new kicker that they just brought in this week. So Heineke's gotten a, a little bit of luck also on the turnover-worthy plays. He consistently produces turnover-worthy plays, whether or not they end up being turnovers or not, can fluctuate on a week-to-week basis. The Raiders are down to 12% prob- playoff probability, and the football team, the football team who was totally out of things, is up to 50%. Again, that just shows you the AFC-NFC differential, right? Both of these teams are 6-6, six and six, but the Raiders have a 12% chance to make the playoffs, and the football team has a 50% chance to make the playoffs. Okay, last game of the week. Jaguars at LA Rams. Rams, 14-point favorite. They win 37-7, to seven, and my adjusted score is 34-14, to 14, so still a healthy 20-point victory. The number of the game is... 95th and there was a 95th percentile efficiency game for Stafford who is back on track and back in first place in EPA per play this season so for all the hand-wringing over Stafford and what's happened over the last handful of weeks and I participated in giving him some grief because it was fun mostly he's still first in EPA per play this season so the longer sample the more informative sample the more predictive sample, he's still first this season after this strong performance. Now, it was the Jaguars. It was a definitional get-right type of game, so we'll see what he can do going forward. But I expect he's still going to perform much, much more like a top-10 guy than he will like a bottom-half guy that he was for a while. 80.3 grade for Stafford, too. And Stafford's grades haven't been great this year, even when he's had strong efficiency so that's a that's a pretty decent grade for him and trevor lawrence i don't even know what to say about this we're almost celebrating games that are not totally completely awful for him 16 of 28 145 yards 5.2 yards per attempt only a 3.9 yard a dot laquan treadwell featured receiver here first round guy though <laughs> i was always waiting for people to say that hey he's a first round receiver better than what aaron Rodgers has aaron Rodgers doesn't have any first round receivers um but yeah, just a sad state of affairs there. And 
again, I'm not going to discount everything that's happening with Lawrence. And there are little questions about whose fault it is and everything else there. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more on Friday. Um, but for now, Lawrence, I'd love to see at least one or two high-end performances in these last few performances to end, to end out the year, although it might be a difficult task, again, with Laquan Treadwell as your number one receiver. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I'm going to have the Friday episode where I'll review Thursday night. I'm going to discuss some topics, including things that I did not discuss here, which were not game-related, like the Joe Brady firing, some other rants that I'm sure I'll have prepared for there, and then go into the weekend for games that I like, the matchups there. Um, hopefully, we'll have more like traditional true best bets going into this week than we did last week, where everything was mostly a lean other than that loser where the Patriots continue to own me. Uh, for the bills at minus two and a half. Thanks everyone for listening and I'll talk to you in a few days. Yeah.